You're listening to the Inside Study Abroad podcast, episode number 11. Welcome to the Inside Study Abroad podcast. I'm your host, Brooke Roberts. In this show, we explore the world of international education and meaningful travel with some fascinating guests, a little friendly debate, and a whole lot of practical advice. Let's get going. Hey there, everyone. Welcome back to the show. Thank you so much, as always, for listening. I am coming to you live from Bali, Indonesia, but I'll get to that in a second. I feel like a lot has happened in the world, especially in, in my world, since the last time we were all together. You know, for me, I've I presented at five different regional NAFSA conferences about topics relating to reflection in programs abroad and also launching careers in international education. I was able to attend both the IIE Generation Study Abroad Summit and the CIEE conference in LA where I kind of creeped out Mira Sorvino, true story. I did a half cross country road trip from Kansas City to LA and back again. Uh, we have a new president-elect, and I'm now, like I said, in Bali leading one of my yoga adventure retreats with my company, Yoga Travel Tree. Um, I will say that one of the things I just mentioned is not necessarily a happy development, at least not in my book, but I don't want to get too political on this podcast, at least for now. We're going to table that conversation for 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 a minute, uh, I don't want to go go into that. I'm still kind of recovering and still processing and still trying to figure out what we do with that 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 development and and move forward. Uh, but it's been a crazy couple of months. The election plus all the other things I've had going on in in terms of travel. But I'm super excited to be back to the podcast and to share some of the really amazing interviews I've collected along the way over the past couple of months. But before we get into today's episode, I first want to thank today's sponsor. That's right, I have a sponsor of the podcast. The amazing team over at Terra Data. So before I tell you guys a little bit about Terra Data. Um, I feel like it's really important for you to understand sort of what goes into developing this and producing this podcast. So, you know, aside from the time it takes to identify a great potential guests and then, you know, coordinating with them or their team to figure out the best time to record doing the recording, it takes me about six to eight hours to edit each episode. And that's because I take a lot of care into listening to each episode in full, editing out different elements that just don't make sense or don't flow with the conversation. I try to make both myself and the guests sound as intelligent as possible. So there's a lot of sort of cutting and, and slicing and dicing that sometimes that goes into some of the episodes. And I don't want them to be too terribly long either for you guys as listeners. So it does take quite a bit of time because I listen to each one several times before it goes live. And then of course, I've got to sort of prepare the show notes and, and what I'm going to talk about in these intros and the outros that I do at the end of each episode. And then I've got to render them all, upload them. I've got to you know pay for hosting publish the show notes and then of course all of the marketing collateral that goes with it creating the images and posting them on twitter facebook instagram all the places uh, it just takes a lot of effort and it's definitely a labor of love uh, when i started reaching out to people saying hey would you be interested in sponsoring the podcast teradata was one of those organizations that said yeah let's give it a try so i, I love that about them i love that they're sort of taking a little bit of a risk on uh, this little fledgling podcast so i really really appreciate it but let me tell you a little bit more about teradata if you're not familiar with them although shame on you you should really know who they are so teradata is a flexible web-based enrollment processing and application management software solution that streamlines the processes for both users and administrators they focus on the easing the workload for university study abroad, international student services, and risk management offices. They currently have over 500 offices taking advantage of the solutions they provide. And if you want to learn more about what they could potentially do for your office or institution, get in touch with them at teradata.com and let them know that you heard about them over on Inside Study Abroad. So thank you again to Teradata for sponsoring this show. And with that, let's get into today's episode. Today, I'm presenting my interview with Amy Baker, the co-founder of the Pi News. Pi stands for Professionals in International Education. It launched in 2011, I believe, and has been going strong ever since. And we're going to get into the sort of 
the bootstrap beginnings of the organization as Amy and I will talk about. And some of the other things we're going to get into is um, some major watershed moments that the pie, uh, that they experienced at the pie and you sort of those moments when Amy knew that they'd built something that was important that was going to sort of stand the test of time. She's also going to talk about some of the mistakes, the biggest mistakes that they made while they were building the company. And then we're going to talk about some some major cultural differences between the professional worlds of international education in North America, Europe, Asia, and Australia. We're going to discuss Amy's take on the future of international education and the issue of employability post-university. And we're going to talk about many other things, but also we're going to discuss a few, a few new alternatives to traditional higher education options that both Amy and I have discovered that we think are really compelling. And of course, we're going to get into Amy's story and how she sort of developed her own sense of wanderlust and passion for journalism and telling stories specifically in international education. I also have to mention that Amy was sitting in a pretty echoey room when we did this podcast interview, so it's going to sound a little echoey on her end. I did my best to try to get rid of it in post-production, but it's something that's basically impossible to get rid of. So I apologize for that, but it doesn't take away from the great content. So let's go to the show. Amy, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. Let's first start by you telling us your sort of international story and how you got to where you are today. Okay. So uh, like many people, it all began with a study abroad experience of my own. I spent a year studying journalism in France as part of my degree and just loved it, just absolutely loved it and then was lucky enough to be able to carry on working in the study abroad industry. So I started working for a magazine so soon after I graduated, um, a magazine which was aimed at education agents who help advise students on where they should study. Um, and I worked my way up um, at that company and then decided I wanted to do something for myself, um, partly because I guess I'd got to top of where I was and partly because I wanted to broaden out sort of media coverage that I would be able to write about so I could write about study abroad, language learning, but also studying at university level abroad all the way through to international masters, PhDs and sort of take a much wider look at the world of international education, I guess, and all the different facets of the industry, which is, you know, multi-billion dollar industry globally. So from there, you started, was it always the pie news? Like, did you, was that the first iteration of what you created? Yes, it was. I mean, I spent about a month trying to find a name for the company, and I was running all these different ideas by my brothers, and they were, they were like, no, no, no. And I was like, what am I going to come up with? <laughs> And then I just had, I tried it out on there and I remember saying the pie and they were like, that's it, that's it, because it just instantly rolls off the tongue and the pie stands for professionals in international education, which sort of sums up everybody broadly that we were trying to reach when we came up with the pie. And so how did, how, I mean, if you don't mind sharing this part of like how you guys got started, this I am always fascinated with this, like sort of the very beginning stages. Was it was it just sort of a blog where you just started writing and then it grew, or did you go out and get like investment money to help you establish it? Um, so, well, the first thing was I approached. Um, I spoke to a few people, but I ended up working with two other women, so I went into business with them. So spoke to them about what I wanted to do, one of whom I previously worked with before, that's Jane Gillum, and then Claire Gossage is the other um, director, and she was somebody I'd worked alongside, seen at events, etc. And she was working for a university in London at the time, so I told them about my idea, and they were like, yeah, definitely, let's get involved. So they became involved, so that was, I guess, the first step. Um, and... And then the, what we did is work on designing a website. So I had a sort of vision for the website and the sort of content it would incorporate. So worked on that. But while we were working on building the website, um, also launched a sort of recruitment division, which we now call the Pi Talent, basically helping helping people find staff they need to help grow their business. I've been in the industry at this point for 16 years, I guess, and I knew a lot of people, and my job had been to network internationally right. um, so that really worked really organically and that, that was a very successful move for us in terms of bringing in cash flow from, the, right. from day one so yeah I don't know, don't know if I'd anticipated how important or how successful that would have been but it, that's really taken off and that's now a very distinct division of the pie and I have you know three people working 
on Pi Talent and Naomi applied to all around the world. But yeah, that was probably sort of the big stroke of genius exactly. <laughs> in terms of getting the company off the ground. Yeah, yeah. That's yeah, it's, right. it's hard to launch a media brand otherwise. Right. Yeah. That's why. That's why I asked because I'm like, well, it's so it's so well oiled now. It seems so yeah, obviously very well put together. I was just clicking through the website earlier today, and it's like it couldn't have always been this like professional. You know, where did it get started? So that's really interesting uh, to see uh, sort of on the back end, kind of some of the things that are happening. Because I think a lot of times. Um, when people are launching companies and honestly any industry paying the bills through some other kind of process yeah. right so yeah uh, i think we're still very much known a lot of people know us as a media brand first right. and foremost so not everyone realizes we do have this other division but it's it's definitely a significant part of the business right right and, yeah. And, yeah and it works so well alongside media because obviously we can use our own web job swap site on our own website to right. Promote, I like to talk about watershed moments in careers or companies. Um, what would what were some of those watershed moments? Obviously, you know this idea of you were doing the recruitment on the side. That sounded like it was kind of a watershed moment for you. Uh, what have other been some other big wins or big success moments for the pie over the years? Well, in terms of me realizing that the brand was really big and much bigger than any of our own sort of individual networks, I remember. I remember going to NASA some years or other events and I'd, I'd meet people and I'd say, I'm Amy Baker, and they'd be like, oh, okay, where do you work? I'm, I'm from the pie. Oh, the pie. I mean, <laughs> like, I guess that's not really a watershed moment, but yeah, there's definitely been a few moments in the last two or three years when you realize that a lot of people know the pie, even if they don't know who I am. They, a lot of people read it and share it. And right. yeah, seeing, seeing sort of very incredible sources name us as so I think Institute of International Education named us as one of their top favorite Twitter feeds. <laughs> I think we were, I think it was only in our second year. We were like, wow, that's amazing. That's great. I think, I think in the UK they named the Times High on us. We were like, amazing. <laughs> <laughs> on the flip side of that, how have you? What have there been any moments or any anything you didn't get right, like where you guys kind of messed up as big oops or things you tried that just did not take off? Trying to think, there's, I mean, we've had, there's always been lots of ideas of other, and I guess what's exciting about running a media brand is there's always new ways you can move, so there's always new things you could try because your job is helping connect people with news stories but also just connecting with people all the time. Um, I, ha- I have to say there hasn't really been anything which has been a major mistake, I don't think. Right. Uh, well, good for you. Dang. Yeah. I'm impressed. <laughs> I mean, it's trying to sort of work out where to focus your energies the most as you grow. That's, like, that's right. an ongoing challenge. But yeah, nothing that we think has been a major mistake so far. Right. I know. It's like, well, dang, I, I'm, you guys need to write a book on how to start a company. So one of the things I, I found interesting and I've always found interesting about uh, looking at how you guys cover the, cover the field, cover what's happening in international education um, is also the language you use to describe it. Um, and even just in your intro there where you're talking about sort of the evolution of the pie and where it came from, you use phrases like industry on your website, you talk about sector, stuff that lends itself to more of like a business mind or a business approach to the space. Whereas mm-hmm. in I know that in my in my career coming up in, in the US or if it's North America, I'm not sure, you know, there's, there's a lot of people who they they cringe when they hear phrases like industry, you know, they don't want it to be thought of as like an industry. And I'm just interested, like, how is it, is that just a cultural difference, do you think, between Europe and North America? Where do you, where do you think that comes from? I don't think it's a cultural difference, because I think there are also people who work in um, study board or higher education who might feel the same way in the UK. Okay. Okay. Um, particularly the sort of study abroad exchange models. I mean, a lot of people who work at universities, yeah, I mean, I'm sure the UK might feel that way, but I guess it comes out of, it's something that a lot of people mention to us, but they appreciate, I think, the way we write differently with a slightly more commercial um, focus or insight in the way that we cover stories. But I guess it comes really, to some extent, from my background, having written largely for 
the language teaching industry, so Spanish language, English mm. as a foreign language, and working writing for agents who service that, whose whole business model is getting paid to present students, you know, to to get English lessons or Spanish right, lessons. Right. Um, and I was always aware of what a big industry it is, and I think I don't think that's a bad thing at all. I think with growing industry becomes comes growing professional standards. I mean, you can just see the debate in the US around whether to use education agents or not and how far that's, that's come in the last three or four years. I mean, I guess we, we don't see there being anything wrong with acknowledging international education as a significant economy and industry. I, I am with you completely. I'm just curious that if you'd ever received any kind of pushback, and I think you're right, I think it's definitely from more of the study abroad, education abroad side, um, exchange models, because they're more rooted in sort of the higher ed academic experience, I think, than sometimes mm-hmm. um, other areas of the field that I think are equally valid and equally valuable, you know, to the tri- types of experiences we're trying to create. That lends me to like the next question. What do you think are some of the big um, professional, I guess, differences between the professional spaces in the, the U.S. versus Europe. Do you, do you ever see any? You, I feel like you are, you guys have your hand, you know, in all the different regions of the world and how the profession prevent, presents itself in those spaces. I'm just curious, what are some of the differences you've seen, if there are any? Um, yeah, that's interesting. So I guess you can look at it both outbound and inbound. And I think study abroad outbound in the U.S. is actually even though statistics show that not so many Americans who can study abroad as compared to the, you know, the UK or Europe, I think the study abroad outbound industry is actually hugely professionalized in the, in the US and you have really big brands like go overseas, go abroad. Mm-hmm. Um, so many very well-established third-party organizers as well as all the sort of uh, listing sites as well. Um, Inbound, if you're looking at just looking at North America, inbound, I mean, it's sort of well known that discussions around how to recruit students, use of education agents, I mean, it's definitely still some way behind the, the approach that you see in Australia and the UK. Interesting. Um, and I think that we've seen that, and everyone, a lot of people have talked about how they've noticed the sort of sea change in, in appetite among US universities to be a bit more commercial, I guess, around how they how they recruit international students because, but not just because they want to make money, but because often, you know, the primary reason is they know how much international students enrich their campus. Right. I mean, it is a, it is a sort of revenue, but it's also a sort of revenue which can be used to enhance the services that all, all students on that campus receive, and the U.S. students really benefit from being in that environment, and I think that sort of realisation around that it's actually a really good thing for us to pursue proactively pursue increasing international recruitment, that has definitely stepped up a pace in the U.S. What do you feel the U.S. market could learn from how sort of the European, U.K. market has approached their work with agents? Like, are there any lessons to be learned there that the Americans can take away? Um, I mean, AFC, AILC in the U.S. is doing a good job. I guess they could learn from Australia probably first and foremost okay. because Australia, uh, Australia is sort of leading the conversation on how to work with agents and the Australian government has put some money into um, research which IEAA is conducting on the idea of a sort of uh, code of ethics for agents or some sort of um, I mean, best yeah, practices sort of standardization best practice. yeah, yeah. I mean, we, have, we have something called the London Statement which not the US, but six other countries have signed up to, which is a sort of loose agreement on how countries should conduct relations with education agents and therefore their universities. Um, yeah, on a country, on a national level, I think it's five or six countries have signed up to the London Statement. Um, but I think Australia has pursued the conversation a bit more even than the UK. There's some serious sort of stakeholders over here who've got really interesting things to say, but Australia as a country has put more money and and thought into how it might regulate its relationship with agents and Australian universities are required to publicly display a list of their all the all their education agent partners on their website, for example. And it's mm-hmm. um, yeah, I think it's moved on a little bit more over there in Australia. 
let's talk a little bit about, I feel, I feel like you are kind of a forecaster. You're a meteorologist for what's coming down the pipeline for international education, as I feel like uh, the pie, you know, generally in your team sort of have your your nose down and sort of sniffing out what's coming. What do you think we should be looking for globally um, in terms of international education in 2017, 2018? What do you think are going to be some of the, the big things coming? Hey, wow. <laughs> I, like I said, I just got back from my holiday, so let me yeah. just get my, let me just scream my head in. I'm getting um, you hard. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, increasing focus on uh, skills as well as education. So. Increasing acknowledgement of the importance of employability, understanding that international students make that huge investment and commitment to study abroad because they think it enhances their chances of employment, which means they don't just want a degree or a post grad, they want opportunities to show what they have learned and workplace learning if possible. So, I mean, that's actually very difficult to achieve in some countries more so than others. So, we think that Canada and Australia will increasingly win, win market share because they have good post-study work policies in place as well as the opportunity to work and learn at the same time. Mm -hmm. Um, Interesting sort of moves towards hybrid learning, it's still very much in its infancy but the way students will blend real workplace, real study sort of on campus with um, learning online which can be more personalised. we think there'll be some trends there. Interning, like I say, that's sort of linked to the way education encourages employability. And but interning as well has 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 legs. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. it's really interesting you bring that up because I went to the global internship conference. I don't. Did you have anybody there at that conference from the Pi? I don't uh, think this year. But not this year. Dang it, you missed a good one. Well, the it was was great. It was in Boston, and I was one of they did a mock debate all about uh, student global mobility, and I was one of the the debaters. And um, but it was really interesting. We were each presenting a different sort of idea about how to increase student global mobility as it relates to internships specifically, and we were all sort of taking a big idea like funding or I talked about visas another person talked about this the, the the delivery mechanism like how these programs are structured and it was really interesting to uh, hear one of the presentations was all about this idea of basically turning higher education upside down almost and sort of removing the brick and mortar sort of experience that you know we we have immortalized of what university the university experience should look like and you know the big quads and things like that and saying no like what that's not necessary anymore maybe what we need now is more of that student sort of self-directed almost in some cases self-designed experience where um it's learning but mostly experience based Mm -hmm. and i think it's really interesting you are also predicting that um a lot more of that is going to come into play in the future and i i think especially in the U.S. side, I mean, obviously, I'm, I am, you know, I went through the U.S. higher education system myself and, and seeing, you know, their universities closing and just the crazy inflation of the cost of higher education here, I think something is going to, to break and crack soon. And students are going to be looking for something that is a really enriching experience, but um, that also does, they can actually pay for it and not, you know, go to their go to their grave with a massive amount of debt. I think, Yeah. Um, wh- have you heard of the Wayfinding Academy? No, I haven't. Uh, you guys need to get, look, take a look at them because um, a good friend of mine, Tina Chance, she's on sort of the founding board of it, but they're basically sort of reconstructing what a higher education degree can look like. And they've got, they're a higher education institution, they're accredited and they cost $5,000 a year, but it's also based on experiential learning, service learning, <laughs> mentorship, things like that. It's based in Portland. You guys, you should definitely check it out, but it's, okay. it's definitely yeah. a cool new take on what a degree can look like. And um, it's, it's really, really impressive. I'm trying to get the the founder of that on the podcast as well to talk more about what they're doing. Uh, but I think that's really, really interesting. Yeah, no, it sounds great. It sounds great. There's another interesting one called um, Minerva Institute, Minerva KGI. I don't know if you've heard about Minerva. No. But that's all the, le- all the learning is delivered online, but the students actually meet 
and study together in a different city every year. So they start off in San Fran for the year and then they go to Delhi or Sao Paulo. So they're having the sort of experiential side of learning to work with their classmates and getting out to see different cities, but there's sort of learning sort of lived online. I mean, that's, yeah, I mean, there's going to be quite a lot more sort of experimental ways of right. delivering education. Yeah. Um, also, just, just the length of education. We've, we've written one piece in our magazine, The Tire Review, on, and it's basically about modular or nano-learning. Yeah, I mean, this whole idea that you could learn really effectively if you just study for 10 minutes a day. I mean, just the idea of having to do a four-year degree, I think that's going to be increasingly challenged as well by some... Right. serious new upstarts in education who are trying to shake up the way we learn. Right. And I think it'll be interesting to see how the 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 real world, quote unquote, the real world will react to these new types of models. You know, so the students going through a Wayfinding Academy or the, the Minerva program, like you just mentioned, or any other sort of new take on what this can look like. It'll be interesting to see how that's received because it won't look traditional. You know, it won't be like that standard mm. resume, and it will be. I, as much as we talk about the need for experience and um, skill building and being able to translate the, the educational experience into a, some kind of marketable <laughs> a, a job or profession later where you can actually get paid, I think it'll be interesting to see how that that transitions into... Yeah, I agree. And yeah. that's why getting employers to acknowledge and appreciate mm -hmm. different routes to get in front of you with their CV or their resume. Yeah, that's, that's, that is another challenge, absolutely. And while, you know, the human, the human resources departments only want to look at Ivy League, etc. I mean, mm -hmm. it's, that's, the, that's the challenge, but that will inevitably change with every generation. I think people will be a bit more broad-minded, perhaps, if they know people who studied in different routes as well. Right. Well, it sounds like there's an amazing opportunity for organizations like NAFSA or Forum plus NACE, which in the U.S. is focused on career counselors and, at university level and, and employers, and then, you know, human resources organizations, professionals, uh, for there to be some kind of summit or something where they sort of collaborate and come together to see, and, and experiential learning organizations, too, to sort of see how this all comes together to create, you know, the perfect human, the perfect employee, um, mm. and, and how we, you know, sort of respect all the things that all those all those constituents are bringing to the table. Um, yeah, I agree. And I think universities have done a, a super job for, you know, decades and decades. But what's interesting is technology is changing everything so fast. Right. And, and what, but what you have at some universities, not all by, by a serious stretch, but what you have at some universities is sort of generation of people making making decisions about how to run it who, who, who maybe don't use technology as much as, you know, generations below them. Mm -hmm. I don't think we should underestimate how, how much technology might change. Mm -hmm. No, I the, completely agree. Education can be delivered as well. Right. No, I completely agree. Uh, you know, I, I, I teach courses online, you know, all the time, and it's really based on uh, a needs assessment of like what people are saying they're lacking, you know, and I think there's so, this, this whole online uh, course creation world sort of bubbling up that I think more and more of what people you know need to know to you know to to learn to code or learn copywriting I mean there's so much out there uh, learn how to design your bedroom I mean people are teaching mm -hmm. all of this stuff online and I think it'll be interesting to see how you know people start seeing alternatives to through tradi the traditional you know 150 grand yeah. experience that's what I'd say it's that's why we write about MOOCs quite a lot. We right. think that's, you know, one of the interesting trends is this is a sort of <laughs> micro ex university experience online, which, which has taken off. You know, um, it's really interesting to watch MOOCs and how they develop and how international students might consider, you know, adding a few MOOCs to their portfolio as well. Mm -hmm. But this, I mean, yeah, so online tech offers, offers a lot of opportunity, but sort of come back to our original point about study abroad, nothing really does replace um, the experience of living in another country and getting to know another culture. So the experiential value in study abroad would always be really, really important. So I, I have 
one thing I want to kind of go back to, I don't like, which direction do I go here? Because I, I feel like I kind of skimmed over. I want to know more about Amy. Like, so you said, oh, I studied abroad. I went to France. Um, but where, but let's, let's rewind. Let's go back to college or before. Like, what, did you grow up in a family that traveled a lot? Was that just second nature to you? Like, where did that come from? Well, so... Interestingly, I didn't get on a plane till I was 19. Um, I did. I did travel quite a lot with my family, but we, we would. I'm a triplet, so I have two brothers the same age. Um, oh, that's a fun fact! You're a triplet. That's hilarious. That's yeah, awesome. and um, me and my parents would drive to Europe, so we we'd go to Europe quite a lot. But I hadn't actually been on a plane until. I went to uni and then I was chosen because I spoke French to go on a French sort of journalism week course and um, I just loved it, absolutely loved it. And, and I guess I travelled every summer um, that I possibly could and I have travelled quite a lot and yeah, I guess I just, I just loved, I've always loved travel. I remember I applied, I applied for five different degree courses and all of them offered me a year abroad so I was very clear when I was even, I guess, 18 and applied for universities that I wanted to study abroad. I didn't know at the time that it, I would end up having a career in it, but um, I did love it. And my brothers did too. My, one of my brothers ended up, uh, he's tra- he spent two or three years traveling and lived in Australia for 10. Um, where do we get that wanderlust from? I don't know, because if you look at my family tree, everyone was a farmer for about 500 years. <laughs> <laughs> hey, oh my God, you're like me. You're like the Kansas, the, you're the UK version of a Kansas girl. That's awesome. <laughs> Uh, yeah, I don't know why. I guess, um, yeah, but we're all very sociable. Me and my two, my two brothers. I don't know if it's something to do with being triplets and always having buddies around, but right. And I just love meeting people from other countries. I mean, just loved it. So yeah, that's great. And then what about the the, the interest in journalism and telling stories? Basically, where did were you a storyteller when you were little? Were you like putting on plays for your family with your brothers? Uh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> nice. We were, funnily enough. Just talking about that at the weekend. Um, yeah, I guess I always just liked writing and communicating and, and always thought it would be really interesting to be involved with being able to tell a story. And what I've loved about working in the study abroad industry, I guess, is it is a significant and multi-billion dollar industry, but it's also significant and important and changes people's lives. And I was always slightly surprised by how little good media there was for our industry. Mm-hmm. Um, that's, that is, I guess, another reason why I wanted to, to launch the pie, because I think it's a brilliant industry and life-changing and something which is so great to be involved with. And, and there wasn't a lot of outlets for people to you know, share their stories or for us to report on what's happening and the way the industry is changing. And, um, you know, if it, we feel like we're providing a service and we love it, everybody everybody who works at the party now has studied abroad. And, um, everyone loves, we were just discussing who's going on the next few trips, you know, yeah. to go to various conferences. Yeah, we're all passionate about it and I think we probably wouldn't employ people who weren't, obviously. And I just think of all the industries you could work in. This is not a bad one. No, not at all. Uh, so <laughs> this, that's a great segue. Thank you. We didn't even rehearse that. That was awesome. Uh, so I want to know first, how many um, people work for the pie now full-time? Ten full-time and then some part-time. Well, that's, I mean, that's a, a, a great size of an organization, of a team. But it's, you know, it's not huge, but it's also like that's a lot of personalities to manage and, and build a dynamic team that can work together but also has very different you know, skill sets. Yeah, I think with all that experience, plus with the Pi talent side, with the doing the recruitment since you launched in 2011, I believe, mm-hmm. um, I feel like you probably have some great advice for people trying to grow their careers, not necessarily just from starting out, but even somebody that might be, you know, assistant director of something right now, or, you know, more mid-level. Um, what do you feel like, are, are, what's a mistake you think people are making when they're trying to go to the next level in their career, whatever it is? A potential mistake they might be making it would be um, being too timid in that. I think there's a lot to be said for reaching out on, to people on social media, interacting, approaching people at events, submitting blogs for you know, sites such as our own and saying, I want to make I'd love to write for you. I think a lot of people are doing amazing jobs and feel like they're probably hiding their hiding their life a little bit. Um, 
just because, I mean, yeah, maybe in the UK you could accuse them of having that sort of British reserve. I don't think you could say the same in the States, but I, I have to meet great people at events and talk to them about you know, what they're doing and how they're trying to do things differently and some brilliant sort of social entrepreneurship um, initiatives, for example. And, and yeah, and some people don't don't venture that information, don't proffer it, and I think you can make they can make themselves stand out or by engaging with media organisations. And we do we try really hard to make the pie seem look like a friendly, approachable media organisation. Mm-hmm. Um, but I guess from my perspective, how I might be able to help people get that step up is to advise them to reach out to us and tell us what you're up to, and we can help. Right. Yeah, no, I think that's great. Yeah, I had a, in my Global Pro Institute, I had uh, one one gentleman from the UK uh, join, and it was so funny at the end when I was asking him how it went and what, you know, what he liked, what, what could be improved, all those things, and he, he probably gave me the best compliment ever, but it was really based on this idea of, like, brand building, and one of the things I teach is, you know, getting your voice out there or and reaching mm. out and, act, and, like, sort of what you just described. And he, you know, that plus a lot of other things I teach, he just th- he said, nobody's doing this in, at least in, it seemed like to him, in the international ed industry. And he felt like he had, like, this cool secret that, like, nobody over there knew yet. And I was like, I don't think so. I think a lot of people know it. They're just maybe not executing on it. And I, for me, that's one of the biggest things. I think a lot of people feel like, oh, I already know that. Teach me something new. And I, my response to them is like, but have you executed on the things you know? And yeah. a lot of times that's the problem. If they're like, oh, I know I need to be doing those things. I just want to learn more stuff instead of just going out there and making things happen with the information they already have. And so do you think that's like a significant challenge that people have, especially in the States, I guess? Do you think there's a lot of people who feel like they want to progress and they're, seeing, they're finding like a ceiling they can't get past? Well, I think I think I think in some cases I don't know that we're unique as an industry in this in this regard necessarily mm-hmm. um, because I think even if you're in the accounting space, I mean, there's just there's a reason that you know most organizational charts are sort of look like a triangle, you know, a pyramid or what have you. So um, there's just fewer opportunities as you go up the pyramid or the ladder, and so yeah, it gets a little bit more competitive. I think I think where people oftentimes struggle the most is that in that entry level stage so they might take a job that's not ideal because they just want to get in the door get in the room so to speak and um, I think sometimes where it gets really really challenging and I think people don't expect this I think they think the first job is the hardest job I think Mm -hmm. the second job of like finding a better fit of the type of work maybe a location you really want to be in or the type of organization um, because you're in now you have sort of maybe higher expectations and I don't know Mm -hmm. I think that can sometimes be where people struggle a little bit as well what about yeah, you? I mean, I feel like you you're working with people, um, you know, helping with recruitment and 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 land people in the right fit organizations. What do you feel like is the challenge for them? Yeah, I, I just and it's an interesting question. I don't I don't come across a lot of people who feel sort of stymied as, as it were. Mm-hmm. I, I felt like you were suggesting that a lot of people feel like they don't know what to do to get to to. To, to go further. Right. Um, I mean, talking to people who are specialist recruiters does always help. Um, but no, I mean, because we, I guess, our reach is universities, but also the sort of all the private education companies in our space, and mm-hmm. particularly in those sort of private education companies, I think people people are quite savvy on sort of moving around and enabling conversations to happen, which might help them move in, in the future. I think, I actually think, which is possibly your audience and I think it's at, at university level where if where people feel most stuck and that's sometimes because they they don't want to move locations right yeah um, you're absolutely right yeah um, yeah I, and I think that's one of the things too. I mean, one of the um, one of my professors in grad school said to us when we were all sort of the last semester, all you know, pounding the pavement, trying to get jobs. And one of the things she talked about was that there's basically three areas of any given opportunity, professional opportunity, and you're likely lucky if you get two of the three. And then it's sort of your ideal location, the ideal job, like the actual work you're doing, and then mm-hmm. like the cultural fit. So 
how do you interact with you know your peers, your coworkers, the institution, things like that, or the organization? And she's like, sometimes you're, like you'll be lucky if you get. I mean, you've hit the jackpot if you actually found all three. Um, but if you know you're lucky if you got two out of the three. And I I think a lot of times people don't realize that they it's hard to get like that that the dream job, like, does it really exist? And I think sometimes it's about making your situation a dream come true as opposed to trying to find that external <laughs> dream mm-hmm. experience. That Sometimes I just don't, you know, w- the working world is not perfect, as I think you know. <laughs> mm-hmm. And it doesn't always, you know, sort of, it's not always shiny and bright as as you think it might need to be. There's, there's horrible, horrible moments. I mean, I, I had a great experience at Go Abroad, but I also had some really horrible moments. And I, I mean, and it, I'm, I'm not ashamed of that. I also have really horrible moments in my current, you know, professional experience. Mm-hmm. So uh, I think that's a reality that people sometimes just don't want to Yeah. And ultimately, at a university, which is a big institution, often quite siloed, it's, it's hard to make changes as well. I and mean, I think certainly working for private companies, you, you don't always get the perks that you get at a you know, university job, but things are much more fluid, much more dynamic. Mm-hmm. I mean, for example, here at the Pi, everyone can work one or two days from home, which which everyone really likes. Um, and people are on the road a lot. It's, it, it sort of suits our organisation, but that's that's something that's quite hard to come by, I think, in much bigger institutions. Right. Yeah, you have to come up with much greater justifications for why you need to do that every week, whereas... Right. We just, that, we just started off that way, because when we launched the Pi originally, it was from my house, and I had my children... When my baby was still upstairs two days a week. <laughs> <laughs> I love it. I love it. Yeah. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, that's great. Yeah, there'd be two days I'd say, you can't work. You can't come to my house because the baby went too much noise. And yeah, and then it just sort of got embedded in our culture and everyone really likes it. Yeah. Well, and I think that's great. And I think creating a great culture around the work you know the mission of your organization is really important and I think you can do that even within a university I mean you can create the tone even within your office even if you know the broader campus environment is really toxic at the moment or something yeah totally it depends on the team doesn't it and the staff right yeah absolutely yeah so you know I feel like people probably look at you they look at this organization that you and your co-founders have built and they think wow They've got it all together. <laughs> they they just figured out life, basically. So, uh, can you give us a, a reality check here? What do you feel like are you guys are still maybe struggling with, or still working on? You just still haven't mastered. Like, what are you still trying to figure out, either either personally in your own professional development, or just as an organization? Uh, right. Okay. <laughs> That's another good question. Um, I mean, time management would be the obvious one. It's so exciting when you're in a company. I know we all really love it, but it's also really hard to turn off, I guess. So trying to, and as the company grows, I mean, we have a lot of plans. We think, you know, the pie could do more. You know, we love what we've done, but we would like to continue to evolve. And I guess as you grow and evolve, it's it's delegating more and it's, um, yeah, it's coming up with a structure that works and allows you to grow so I can't do everything and you know day one I did absolutely everything and I don't do everything anymore and, but I yeah I do have two children and I, I do want to you know be around while they're still young <laughs> so I guess time management is an issue which is getting a lot better like I said I've just come back from holiday when I Hardly check my emails for a week, which was amazing. I know, um, I'm so impressed. <laughs> I mean, and jealous, frankly. I'm very impressed. <laughs> well, yeah, I mean, you're, you know, four years. How long, how long have you been doing? Three years. Incest? Well, Inside City Abroad has been in existence since 2009, but actually doing anything with it for about uh, almost a year. A year and two years, we'll call it two years. Okay, so you're three years behind us. Yeah. So, you know, we were totally where you are. Yeah. <laughs> in my living room. Yeah. Uh, that's fantastic. Yeah. Well, and for me, you know, I think it's also just knowing where y- your vision is for your career or the organization, you know, you're trying to build because I don't want Inside Study Abroad to become a big media empire. I, you know, that's just not 
that's not the vision I have for it. I want to help emerging professionals find their way into international education if that's a good fit for them or, mm -hmm. you know, figure out early on that maybe there's other avenues that might be even a better fit. And that's just my personal sort of soapbox and, 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 and focus right now. It's that I really am really passionate about. Um, one of the things I wanted to ask you about sort of this career side of things, um, if somebody's just starting out really interested in international education, what are, what are some qualities that you look for in a new hire? If you're, you're bringing somebody on the team as, you know, assuming they have some of the, the, the technical things you need them to mm -hmm. execute on. So at the par, you mean? Yeah, yeah, there. Yeah. yeah. Um, so they have, it's an interesting one because not, you don't want everyone to have exactly the same skills, but we right. do, I, I do think that probably everyone we've hired is great fun, but, but, but very good at networking and talking to people. I think that's a very important part of our industry because, you know, it's very global and there's a lot of travel and it's really important to be able to you know, land at an event in Beijing and, and speak to people. So I think everyone, but everyone's also quite self-driven, I think. I think we have a lot of people who are quite driven so that I can say, oh, you know, I'm going to be on holiday for the week, you're going to be away. And everyone's like, absolutely. You know, they, they, they love being given more independence, more responsibility. So, um, so I guess fun-loving yet mature. <laughs> <laughs> I love it. Uh, yeah, I mean, I, I don't know how you even always work out that people are like that, but a lot of people we've hired, I guess, I, I have met, obviously, or have known anyway, not all, not all of them. Um, I mean, we've only hired journalists who, who've done, you know, two degrees in journalism generally, and I haven't always known them, but I guess it's just, it's just trying to work out from one journalist to another, you know, and, and I think actually that's, I think I think some of the, you know some of the people we've been, we've met who are like twenty one I, I find them hugely impressive because you haven't got a lot of life experience beyond having studied abroad possibly so mm. you know this comes back to why studying abroad is really important because if you, if you decided to do that I think it, it says something about your personality. Can, can we unpack that a little bit? Can you give an example of somebody recently who is <laughs> no you know no real experience other than they study abroad? They're young, like you said, twenty one years old. What 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 was it about them that really impressed you? How did they present themselves that just made you go, wow. Um, who should I pick? <laughs> <laughs> um, I interviewed her, she's been with us for quite a while, so I, went, I interviewed her when we were still working out of my house and she turned up and um, she told me that she just, she's from Oklahoma originally. And, oh my gosh, that's um, just down down the road from me right really? now. Yeah. <laughs> so, so she's from Oklahoma, but she spent four years living in Barcelona and then she'd been in London studying a master's in international journalism and I sort of asked her about her story and she told me she just booked a one-way ticket to Barcelona and I was like, wow, wow. You know, that's really bold when, you know, most of her, she said a lot of the people she was studying with um, had never really travelled beyond North America and I just, you know, it says a lot about some, someone if they book a one-way ticket and they don't, and, sorry, and they don't speak Spanish. <laughs> right. <laughs> Yeah. You know, I mean, you just know someone can handle various situations. And, and for all of us who have studied abroad, we know it. There are times, particularly with the language learning element, you know, if you go to a country where you don't speak that language, there are times you just feel completely lost or vulnerable. And I think you learn a lot by having to negotiate through those situations. Right, right. exactly. Yeah. No, that is impressive. I mean, you're right. That is impressive. And, and I think sometimes, you know, what one of the things I teach my students is, is you guys have, they have the content. They just aren't packaging it up in a way that does get that reaction of like, dang, wow, that's, that's impressive. Tell me more about that experience. And, and they're, they're for, they're just sort of undercutting, you know, I think like we mentioned before in the call, like uh, the, sort of devaluing what they've already experienced and then just not figuring out exact, exactly how to position it, how to craft it in a way that, that does tell it in a really dynamic way you know, fashion, yeah. get somebody impressed, yeah. Yeah, definitely. I mean, everyone who's studied abroad probably do. I think we've written stories on this before. I mean, there's, they undersell the value of that experience in their resume and when they talk to potential employers, right. for sure. Exactly. 
Well, so this has been an awesome conversation. So let's let's wrap this up with my final question. I, I try to ask everybody this. I don't always make it. But one of the things I would love to ask you, everything, imagine you are 18 years old. You're starting college this fall. And you have the whole world and life ahead of you. But you have the knowledge you have right now. Um, where, you know, you're going into your university degree, where, where do you think you would study abroad this time around? You can't go back to France, I will say that. Okay, interesting. I mean, I guess I would say, if I could come up with two answers, one would be probably China, because there's just, there's just so much going on in China, and, and learning to assimilate to some degree in Asian cultures even more of a skill, I think, than assimilating in a European environment. I say that for one. The second answer there would be, I'd quite like to try the Netherlands as well, because I just think there's so many amazing English taught programs over there, and they're such a great outward-looking nation, the Dutch, and I think it would be a really fun international environment study in as well. So one of those two, maybe. Okay, so wait, did you say the Netherlands? Yeah. Okay, okay. Yeah, no, that's really fascinating. So it's like, really far away from home but something really close to home but where they're doing something equally interesting and innovative yeah well there's lots of international students studying there and right. i think you really feel part of the sort of international student scene over there yeah there's a lot of there's a lot of groups going over but it wouldn't be as much of a challenge so if i had to opt for one answer it would be it would be china yeah awesome. or malaysia or the philippines i mean right china's maybe always the obvious choice but i think there's lots of interesting asian countries Singapore, even Hong Kong, you know, there's lots of interesting Asian countries where there's a fairly established studyable culture. So, you know, they, you're not a complete, complete alien wanderer and no one knows how to accommodate you. Um, but just really interesting Asian cultures to unpick. Yeah, I agree. We hear that, kids. Listen to Amy. <laughs> you have some great advice from someone very successful in her career. Thank you so much for coming on the show, Amy. I really appreciate it. Thanks very much. I really enjoyed it. There you have it. Thank you so much, Amy, for coming on the show. If you'd like to get in touch with Amy, you can connect with her over on Twitter as Amy Baker the Pie. And of course, I'll have the Pie News linked up in the show notes over on InsideStudyAbroad.com. Thank you again, you guys, for tuning into the show and being so supportive. I have to say, again, thank you so much to Teradata for sponsoring my first ever sponsored podcast episode. And again, if you want to connect with them, you know, I have many friends and colleagues in the field who have you know, told me how Teradata's powerful web-based software has made their lives and their professional worlds immensely easier uh, for managing the life cycle of enrollment and registration processes. So if you want to learn more and see how maybe Teradata can help you in your organization, head on over to teradata.com. So thanks again to Teradata. And thank you to you for listening. I hope you all have a wonderful, wonderful week ahead. And until then, I will see you on the inside. Bye for now.